0: and, Ladies and gentlemen, 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 boys and boys, boys. And children of all ages, we proudly bring to you, Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down.
1: Hello, everybody. Good evening. Mr. Real, how are you doing tonight?
2: My friend, I am doing good. We just had an incredible weekend where Radio Free Mormon came to my hometown and uh, gave a presentation, went to a party. Uh, We were blowing up St. George this weekend, RFM.
1: Totally, and at the karaoke event, I sang a seminary song from 1977 which nobody knew
2: yeah yeah. what i learned this weekend is i'm not the anomaly who doesn't get all your references
1: yes and that's a healthy thing to learn actually <laughs> it was because i was feeling so much shame oh my gosh well that's the whole point of it really yeah we'll see yeah, if we that, can give you some more shame tonight
2: that is the point of it um We are here on, what is it, January 12th, a little Mm. after 6.20 p.m., and uh, you're in charge of tonight's show, and you're going to take us down a little little tangent, a little facet of last week's episode.
1: Yes, it's a very interesting facet, I believe, and it has to do, actually, I was just going to enlarge this, but I'll just sit really close to the screen. This has to do with the second Watson letter. What is the title of tonight's show again, Bill? I made it up, I think, last night, and then I've already Uh, forgotten it. Let's see here if I can find it really quick. It is um, episode 58, I believe, of Mormonism Live. Was it it was something about Skullduggery? Oh yeah. I love that word. Was um, it Mormon apologist skullduggery, the mystery of the second Watson letter?
2: That sounds about right, my friend. That's probably it.
1: But it. before we do that, I think I promised everybody, at least everybody who follows on my Facebook page, which all of you should be doing at Radio Free Morning. You should. Yes, absolutely, that I was going to open this package that I got in the mail. Actually, it was uh, in my office when I returned on Tuesday morning from the trip to St. George, at which I had a great time, great time meeting people. By the way, let me get off the screen there with my outlook. Oh, my gosh, we're going to have a a live hernia on the podcast. What did they send you like?
2: 100 ounce silver bars or what have you i got have them? no
1: idea but you know how on christmas morning when you're a kid and you really you go for the heavy ones right because the light ones are usually going to be socks right okay so i have not opened this prior to this what's in the box logan tatum wants to know we're going to find out here and i'm going to take my knife and i'll try and be Somebody very said careful. be
2: careful i'll just tell you this is how the whole hoffman thing started right
1: uh, well, or at yeah, least ended. <laughs> I have confirmed that this was delivered by a postal carrier. So okay. the one thing we know is that whatever it is, there's no mercury switch. In okay. good, good. So I also want to be very careful. And the reason I'm going to open it the way I'm opening it is because I don't know what's in it and I don't want to inadvertently out somebody who might've sent it to me. So I'm going to be very careful in opening it doesn't seem to be ticking oh my gosh okay excuse me okay i'm getting really excited now i've got to tell you Maybe um you've got the gold plates here oh i've got better than the gold plates but, oh my Lord. Yeah. okay 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 well let me tell you, I'm one very excited Radio Free Mormon tonight. Ooh. Oh, my gosh. By the way, there are so many wonderful people who have sent me so many wonderful things. And I want to thank all of them in general right now because I don't have the time or ability to thank all of you individually. But thank you. Oh, my gosh. Who on earth is sending me a book? Tales to Astonish. This is Marvel Comics stuff and memorabilia. Oh, no wonder it's so heavy. Oh, this is so fantastic. Tales to Astonish, a great, great series of magazines that Marvel used to do. Oh, wow. The Eternals. These are hardback, glossy-paged books. And now that I know what it is, oh, my gosh, it is book after book after book. Oh, thank you. Oh, my gosh, and there's... There's DVDs in here. Oh, this is fantastic. Including Ben Hur, winner of 11 Academy Awards, by the way. Mm. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. There's a Marvel, Five Fabulous Decades of the World's Greatest Comics. That's what they call themselves, World's Greatest Comics. And all sorts of things. Oh, my gosh. This is so fantastic. Thank you so much, whoever sent this. And I also expect that uh, there's an indication as to who sent it in here somewhere, but I will keep that private. Thank you. I'm totally geeking out right now. Let's put this over here to the side. Oh, am I down? No wonder it was so heavy. It was almost coming apart at the seams, and there's only a few black scorpions that appear to still be alive at the bottom of the box, so we'll let them in the box, and we'll continue with tonight's show. All right, so someone loves RFM, everyone loves RFM. That was a comment that was made okay so we're going to talk about the second watson letter tonight i've been doing a lot of research reading a lot of papers one by oh there's one by robert crockett it's an unpublished paper that i i accessed and read it was very very well done does he go by bob well yes yeah i'm I'm familiar with bob crockett too it's a very uncommon nickname for robert uh bob (laughs) bob crockett yeah he's a great guy i really appreciate him and uh he's a, a scholar and a gentleman, and an attorney. So he wrote this, uh, I don't know when, but it was very illuminating, as well as an article by Britt Metcalf, which he he had pointed out to me. By the way, Britt Metcalf was the person who was hopefully gonna be the um, the guest on tonight's show, but he had another commitment, could not make it. However, he has authorized me to tell at least one story of great interest that he related to me, and we'll get to that when we get to that. Okay, so as a lead-in to the second Watson letter, I want to give what is hopefully going to be a brief overview. It's going to be with very broad strokes of Book of Mormon geography since the inception of Mormonism with the publication of the Book of Mormon in March of 1830. So first off, what had occurred to me as I was studying is that there is, of course, we know the Mesoamerican theory of the Book of Mormon, which we covered last week, which started with the reorganized church and then slowly infiltrated into the LDS church. Uh, even over the protestations and written objections of many church leaders, including Joseph Fielding Smith, which we read. But now it has found at least a home in the LDS church among some people, not everybody, right? But then there's also the Heartland Theory, and that's promoted by Rodney Moldrum and his group. And as I was reading, it occurred to me that this Heartland Theory is also a limited geography. In other words, the Mesoamerican theory is a limited geography. It takes place in southern Mexico and Guatemala in that area. That's where they locate the Book of Mormon lands. The Heartland theory is up here in North America, where I live. And it's over there, primarily around western New York and adjacent states. That's where the Heartland model is. But that is also a limited geography. It doesn't take into account anywhere really south of the border, and it's pretty much all in what is now the United States and mostly the eastern United States, and the reason that was a bit of a revelation to me is because when I joined the church, I was inculcated in the idea that it was a hemispheric model. In other words, that the Book of Mormon took place in all of North America and all of South America and also in Central America with the narrow neck of land. Remember that pesky narrow neck of land that joins the land south and the land north and that's so skinny that a Nephite can walk or journey across it in a day and a half we talked about that that last week yeah was very obviously the isthmus of Panama that that's the only thing that seems to match the description if we're looking at that model that's the most obvious straightforward and I was looking at this and I saw, and I thought what the heck ever happened to the hemispheric model well it seems like Nobody, except maybe, you know, the regular lay member like I used to be when I joined the church, even thinks in those terms anymore. The hemispheric model, however, was the first model of the Book of Mormon. It appears that Joseph Smith taught a hemispheric model of the Book of Mormon. That's how he conceived of it. And by the way, there are those who look at um, identifications that were made in Joseph Smith's time and the times and seasons about the ruins that were discovered and sketched in Mesoamerica, the Mayan ruins with, I think it was uh, Stevens and Catherwood. They did a book on it and were quite a cause celeb in the early 1840s. And this was looked at as evidence of ancient Nephite civilizations. Well, the people who are the Mesoamerican theorists, right? Who we'll get to, and I think you know who you are, they latch onto that as evidence that Joseph Smith thought that Book of Mormon geography was limited to Mesoamerica, which is their theory, right? So that's why they want to use that statement. But from Joseph Smith's point of view, I think that any ruins found anywhere in the hemisphere would be viewed by him as being Nephite ruins, because his view was the entire hemisphere. So if you find Native American mounds in New York and nearby. Those to him were Nephite ruins and Nephite structures. Hence, there's a mound that's found in 1834, the famous mound out of which the skeleton is excavated or dug might be a more correct word. And he identifies it as Zelf, the white Lamanite. So that is Nephite or Lamanite. That's Book of Mormon geography, which is very close to his home, at least compared to, um, Mesoamerica, but Mesoamerica stuff and ruins is also considered by him to be Nephite artifacts. In other words, anything found anywhere in the hemisphere is, from Joseph Smith's point of view, going to be Nephite artifacts. There are a number of things that Joseph Smith said that indicate that he did not conceive of a limited geography down in Mesoamerica. In other words, that that's where everything took place some very, very common things that we've all heard, but maybe not in this context, such as the fact that when Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, Moroni tells him that there's plates that are buried in a hill nearby, and on the plates is contained a record of the inhabitants of this continent, okay? Yeah, and well, just to
2: just to yeah. note too, RFM, is that uh, as we pointed out last week, there are two different places, History of the Church, uh, Volume 1, page 184, and uh the second one is the Millennial Star uh number 49, volume XL, page seven seventy-two. In both instances, Moroni knew that the hill in New York was Kimorra um and, and named it that and called it that. And the other participants in both of those experiences uh didn't seem to recognize the word or knew that it was new to them.
1: Right. And thank you for adding these these comments. I appreciate yeah. it, Bill. Um There's also very early on in the history of the church, the first mission was the mission to the Lamanites where Oliver Cowdery and several others were called by the Lord to go and preach the gospel to the Lamanites. Well, they weren't called to go down to Mexico, Southern Mexico or Guatemala. They were called to go down to Missouri, right? You remember that? Yeah. Because over on the West border of Missouri, that was basically the frontier. And on the other side of that, That was Indian country, as they would have called it at that time. So those were the Lamanites that these missionaries were called to preach the gospel to. So I'm just giving these as elements in church history that show pretty conclusively that Joseph Smith is not thinking there's a limited geography down there in Mesoamerica. Also, when Zion was established, where was Zion to be established? Same place, down by the border of the Lamanites and Zion was not to be established down in Southern Mexico either. It was to be established in Missouri, the same place that the missionaries had been called originally. And there was a great paper in the Sunstone magazine back in 2004 by Brent Metcalf, which goes over all of this and provides a lot of documentation. It's called reinventing Lamanite identity. And I was able to read that last night. Really, really good. As I say, we're going to be doing broad strokes here, so we can lead into the second Watson letter.
2: And just, I want to just note, um, you're making a really important point, something we didn't cover last week, which is there are lots of things Joseph Smith did in his ministry with Mormonism that indicated that he understood it as a hemispheric model. And as you're pointing those out, um, they seem to be pretty strong points of evidence that when he sends people to do missions among the Lamanites and in the Lamanite territories, essentially, it's constantly in these places out in the West, uh, in Midwest of the United States.
1: Very good. Thank you. Yeah. So now we've got a situation where uh, initially Joseph Smith and pretty much everybody else, it seems, early on conceives of the Book of Mormon as taking place in the entire hemisphere. But as decades drag on and people start looking more closely at the Book of Mormon and science advances, There are a couple of problems with that theory. The first one, uh, and most obvious perhaps, is demographics. Because a straightforward reading of the Book of Mormon is that really nobody else was here when the Nephites arrived. That's really what it says. The Jaredites had come earlier, and they were led by the hand of the Lord. But other than that, the only people who are going to be here are the ones who are led here by the hand of the Lord. So basically, all of North and South America are vacant when the Nephites arrive. So you've got a very small group of people arriving from Jerusalem around 600 BC. And somehow this small group of people manages to multiply in such a manner as to completely fill all of South America and North America. And even though they've got several hundred years to do that, this is a demographic problem. Yeah. It seems highly unlikely that that would be able to take place. So. And that's even if there were no death by warfare and there's tons of warfare in the Book of Mormon at the end of the Book of Mormon, basically half of the entire population, i.e. the Nephites get destroyed in that battle. So there's all these things that are going on that would lessen or decrease the population, even if there weren't those things going on. It's very difficult to understand how the entirety of North and South America could be filled with people descended from a small group that came over in 600 BC. So that's one, or I should say BCE. And, I'm trying to get myself into that habit. Yes, Bill? And hence another bait and switch, right? Like the the
2: apologists make it so that the only way it works and is that they find this really sparse, ambiguous evidence in the book that there must have already been tons of people here and in, in the Nephites and in Jaredites, maybe to a lesser degree, but the Nephites for sure just blended in.
1: Right. Well, this is something that was forced upon them over time. So um, another reason for the limited geographies that arose, regardless of where they're placed, is because a close reading of the Book of Mormon does really seem to indicate that the geography described there is of a much more limited nature than all of North and South America and Central America thrown into boot. It's probably around the size of the state of Pennsylvania. If you were to take it, turn it on its end and then pinch it in the middle for the narrow neck Mm. that's kind of about the um the geography that seems to be described in the book of mormon so the book of mormon itself seems to describe something that's different from what joseph smith believed it to be even though he's the one who um, from the most faithful point of view translated it so he and then i think um would have edited it i think 1837 in the second edition so he was quite familiar with the contents and yet that's different from the way he understood that geography The Mesoamerican theory, that limited theory was created for a number of reasons. We talked about some of those last week. First off, at a minimum, the society that produced the Book of Mormon, i.e., the Nephites, have to have the ability to write. And I know it's very easy for us to take that for granted, where we have public school systems in the United States, and pretty much everybody can read and write nowadays, but back then, It was very rare, and in fact, during the time period of the Book of Mormon, it appears that there was only one civilization on the face of this entire hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, that did have the technology of writing, and that was the Mayan civilization. So there you get to Mesoamerica immediately. You also need to have artifacts. Artifacts are an important thing, and the hill Camorra and the surrounding environs in Western New York, as we had quoted Brian Clark last week, is a clean hill. And a clean site, meaning there's no artifacts there. Okay. And if you're going to have these massive battles that take place, you're going to have a lot of artifacts. In fact, you'd be hard to swing a dead cat without hitting an artifact in a place that had had that kind of warfare, as it's described there. So, hence, we have to go to southern Mexico and Guatemala, the location of the Mayan civilization anciently. The Isthmus of Panama is now out. The Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Is in because that's the isthmus that the narrow neck of land has to be. Panama's just too far south. Sorry, it won't work with this Mesoamerican theory with the Mayans. And by the way, um, I think the apologists that I've read, or at least the scholars that I've read, try and take pains to, to say the Nephites were not the Mayans, but they were a civilization that, like a shadow civilization that took place right next to the Mayans, but weren't actually Mayans. Anyway, it's hard to get them to agree on everything or on anything for that matter. So the problem with the Isthmus of Tehuantepic we talked about last week, it's just too wide to fit the description of the Book of Mormon, where it's a day and a half journey for a Nephite to cross it. And that's led to a bunch of problems and alternate theories and explanations to try and get around that problem. But it is a problem that has to be surmounted for the Mesoamerican limited geography theory.
2: And by the way, several people reached out to me this past week and said, yeah, I mean, that narrow neck of land, if you assumed it was flat and people could just run across it at a top speed about a day and a half, I guess, to do it. But they said, if you would have been in this area at the time that the Nephites would have been there, it's up and down, it's, uh, heavily clustered with with fauna and wildlife and they said there's just no way that there would be a day's day and a half journey uh, as as it was
1: and I would say even if there was a track or a road you still couldn't do it no I mean maybe if you trained your entire life and you had the you know I mean you're Roger Bannister or somebody maybe you could make it across there but no really you couldn't and the fact that it's not a road and it's jungle not it's just not gonna not gonna work right. So I will leave the different explanations for that problem to other people to look up. That is a problem. Um, The heartland model. Okay. The heartland model now is by a separate group of scholars. This model takes into account statements by Joseph Smith as authoritative. It has the battles take place at the Kimura that Joseph Smith identified as Kimura and which was apparently identified by him and Oliver Cowdery as being the same Kimora as in Western New York. So the battles take place there in spite of the fact that there's no artifacts. But the problem with that is it has to fight against the archaeological record, which is basically zero in the area. So you've got the, the Mesoamerican theory, which tries to um, it. It puts evidence like writing. And science over prophetic statements. And then you've got the Heartland model, which puts prophetic statements over the evidence. So it depends Mm -hmm. on which one you want to emphasize because you can't put both of them together because they don't work together. And actually they don't really work separately. Although there are people obviously who devote a lot of time and energy and are very firm believers in both of these theories. Not at the same time, but either theory. Okay, so... These now become competing theories, the Heartland model and the Mesoamerican model. And there's uh, a war of words and a tumult of opinions between the parties as to who is correct and who is not correct. The hemispheric model, I think, has effectively been shelved, except once again, among the lay members who I expect many of them are like I was when I first joined the church. And they just figure, well, it's the entire hemisphere and they don't really go into it much further than that. So. The Mesoamerican theory now begins to gain some traction among the farms intelligentsia. And by farms, I mean the foundation for ancient research and Mormon studies. You noted last week that it appears to have begun in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. It did not start in the LDS church. The Mesoamerican theory it started in the RLDS church today, the community of Christ covenant. And then it was fought back against by church leaders, including Joseph Fielding Smith. But in 1981, a very important book was published. It's called In Search of Camora and it was written by David Palmer. And this is one of the earliest books that was published within an LDS framework, arguing for a limited geographical theory or limited geography theory for the Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica. So that's a very important book. It was followed up in 1984, three years later, by John Sorensen. When he published his very famous book, An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon, I would think in many ways that book, John Sorensen's book, eclipsed David Palmer's book. As far as its prominence in the area of arguing for a limited Mesoamerican geography for the Book of Mormon. Now. That John Sorensen book came out in 1984. He's published a number of other books as well. And there's an ancient American setting for the Book of Mormon. There's that picture. John Sorensen, I believe, passed away last year and uh, just wanted to acknowledge that um, even though. At this point in my life, I disagree with a lot of what he had to say and probably disagree with his conclusions. This was a hugely important and influential book to me in the 1980s because I thought, oh, he's found it. This is where it happened. Here's all the evidence case closed. But at that time, I was not reading it as critically as I might be reading it at this time. Did we have any uh, slides of the other books that John Sorensen wrote as well?
2: There was Mormon Codex, there right?
1: <clears throat> yeah, here they are. See, there's a ton of books that he wrote, a great deal of research that he did. And I think more so than anybody else in this area. And what this shows is the investment of time and energy and research that John Sorensen put into this, but also John Sorensen is doing this for and in behalf of farms. okay? Who is dead. <laughs> what?
2: You said Ford and in behalf of farms. It sounded oh like gosh. a temple proxy. And since farms became the Maxwell Institute farms is dead. And hence Ford and in behalf of farms who is dead.
1: Oh, there you go. You get, a, you got a reference that I, I slipped on. And the reason why is because I'm just talking like a lawyer. And so is the temple when it's talking there. So I didn't even make that connection, yes, for and on behalf of. But this is the kind of investment and commitment that farms and their scholars had and continue to have to the limited Mesoamerican geography. So going on here, 1984, the same year, John Sorensen, and this is big, had two articles published in the Enzyme magazine. About this issue. They were published in September and October of 1984. The title is Digging into the Book of Mormon, Parts One and Two. It's a two part article. And this appears to be one of the earliest times that this theory is promoted in an official LDS church publication. Now, here's where, excuse me, there's a very important story. And this is one that Brent Metcalf had shared with me, because up until January or so of 1984, Marky e. Peterson, I believe, was the editor of the Enzyme. And Marky e. Peterson was one of the church leaders who, like Joseph Fielding Smith, was very dedicated to the theory that the Hill Cumorah in western New York is Cumorah. That's where the battles took place. And so this Mesoamerican theory contradicts that. It has Cumorah down there in southern Mexico. So this is why, according to this story that I heard from Brent Metcalf, this is why these articles by John Sorensen had to wait to be published in the enzyme until after Marquis e. Peterson passed away. And Elder Peterson passed away in January of 1984. In fact, Brent Metcalf tells me that John Sorensen had submitted this paper to the enzyme before 1984 and it was rejected. And in fact, when it came back rejected, it's a it's a stack of papers, however long it is. I don't know if it was 30 or how many pages, but it was stapled in the upper left-hand corner like you would do to keep your papers together when you submit it, right? The cover page had not even been, been bent back over the staple. In other words, there was absolutely no indication that this paper had been read. Even the cover page turned back, right? And the only marks on this paper, which presumably were by the editor or somebody at his direction, Marky Peterson was written across the front of the paper, the words, this is false doctrine. And Brent Metcalf tells me he actually held that uh, paper in his hand and saw that it had not been bent back over the fold. And he saw the lettering on it. This is false doctrine. So I thought that was interesting because this is how uh, difficult it has been and how much time it's taken in order for this Mesoamerican theory to come to be acceptable within the LDS church. Okay, let's go to the first Watson letter. Are you ready for that? Because we talked about that last week and we have to mention the first Watson letter in order to get to the second Watson letter. So the first Watson letter, Let me go back here, and if we can just uh, make that a little bit bigger. We talked about this a bit last week, and we talked about the fact that this was in response to a letter that had been written by a Brother Sparks in Oklahoma to Gordon B. Hinckley, President Gordon B. Hinckley. Uh, And by that, I mean he's in the first presidency at the time. This was 1990. I don't think he was president yet. I think uh, Ezra no. Tapp Benson was probably president still at that time. But I think
2: President Hinckley became prophet in 94, I think.
1: Yeah. So he's writing to Gordon B. Hinckley. And uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, or the first presidency, ask the secretary, F. Michael Watson, to respond to this question. So can you read that letter? It's the, the, the Excuse me. The date is October 16th, 1990. It's on official church letterhead it's addressed to bishop daryl l brooks who is the bishop in the ward where brother sparks lives because god forbid that they should actually you know respond directly to a member no they're going to respond to his bishop and ask the bishop to give it to the member could you read that
2: yeah dear bishop brooks i have been asked to forward to you for acknowledgement and handling the enclosed copy of a letter to president gordon b hinckley from ronnie sparks of your ward Brother Sparks inquired can about you stop, the location. Can you stop
1: for just a second? Yeah. What are the first four words there? I have been asked. Okay. The reason I focus on that, you know I'm focused on this, Bill, is because this is not something that the secretary, Michael Watson, is doing on his own. He was asked to do this. And who would have asked him, Bill. Well, it
2: seems as though, at the very minimum, Gordon B. Hinckley and most likely the entire first presidency.
1: Right. It's not the janitor. No. It's going to be from the first presidency. He's their secretary. So I have been asked to the very important words at the very beginning. And and we said,
2: by the way, last week, we said that I had spoken to a friend of Uh, because I think he's passed away now, Brother Watson, but a friend of the family who knew Brother Watson very well and said, Brother Watson remained a secretary for the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve for like two and a half decades. And the reason he stayed in that position as long as he did was because he was trusted by everyone to only do what he was asked to do and to keep his lips tight about everything.
1: And I think that when he left, he was... uh... I don't know if promoted is the right word, but he became a member of the 70. Yeah. Um, So yes, uh, obviously he did a job that was thought worthy of being given that position. Yeah. So go ahead, please.
2: All right. So um, I have been asked to forward to you for acknowledgement and handling the enclosed copy of a letter to President Gordon B. Hinckley from Ronnie Sparks of your ward. Brother Sparks inquired about the location of the Hill Cumorah mentioned in the Book of Mormon where the last battle between the Nephites and Lamanites took place. The church has long maintained, as attested to by references in the writings of general authorities, that the Hill Cumorah in western New York's New York State is the same as referenced in the Book of Mormon. The brethren appreciate your assistance, by the way, that the brethren— Mm-hmm. indicates that it's the entire first presidency. Or at the least brethren two of them. Appreci- the brethren appreciate <laughs> what's that? Or at least two of them. At least two of them. The brethren appreciate well, yeah, because you know President Benson's probably not doing so good at this point. Yeah. The brethren appreciate your assistance in responding to this inquiry and ask that you convey to Brother Sparks their commendation for his gospel study. Sincerely yours, F. Michael Watson, uh secretary to the first presidency.
1: Right. And so the problem with that uh, letter, the language of the letter, as far as people who are with farms and the Mesoamerican theory, is that the language has to do with the location of the Hill Cumorah, but not just the Hill Cumorah, but where the last battle between the Nephites and Lamanites took place. That's the key. And that's the burr under their blanket. It's written by the secretary for the first presidency, apparently at their Request according to the language it's on official church letterhead it's signed very nice signature i might add by f michael watson yeah so what happens now and at this point i'm going to not engage in speculation i will at the end but right now i just want to get the facts out here because what happens is in 1993 there is a second watson letter that is alleged by William Hamblin, who was a very important person at farms and a Mormon apologist. I think he passed away either last year or the year before, Um, very tragic. But he had written an article in a farms publication called the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in 1993. So this is three years later. And if we can get that article up here, It starts with, um, can we get the one that starts about uh, methodological problems? Do we have that? Beautiful. Thank you so much, Maven. So that's what it looks like when you pull it up on the website. It was in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. You can see it's 1993, and the title is rather long, but certainly descriptive. Basic Methodological Problems with the Anti-Mormon Approach to the Geography and Archaeology of the Book of Mormon, William J. Hamblin, Brigham Young University. So what he's doing here is he's responding to another piece that was written by some guy named Wilson. And what Wilson is doing is he's challenging this limited Mesoamerican geography that Bill Hamblin and the rest of the farm's crew promotes and wants to defend. And now for the first time, as far as I can tell, we hear about a second Watson letter. And here's what it says here in the article. It's on page 181 of the journal. Finally, Wilson, that's the guy who wrote the article that Bill Hamblin is responding to. Finally, Wilson does not mention the fact that the Latter-day Saint Church has no official position on Book of Mormon geography. Um,
2: We went over it last week. They, for over 100 years, had a very official position
1: on Book of Mormon geography. And it appears that they kind of have of an official position in that Watson letter from 1990. Yeah. But not to worry. Bill Hamlin's going to take care of that problem here in a second. So, or, and Wilson does not mention the fact that other Latter day Saint general authorities have advised caution in theorizing about Book of Mormon geography. Well, yes, they have advised caution, but of course, the farms crew isn't heeding that caution. They're going to go ahead and theorize all day long about Mesoamerica. So now here's the bombshell. You ready for this one, Bill? Let's do it. Michael Watson, oh, we know this name, don't we? This is from the article, Michael Watson, secretary to the first presidency of the church, has recently clarified the church's position on Book of Mormon geography. And the amazing thing is he's not gonna be citing to the, the first 1990 Watson letter. Instead, he's going to cite to a 1993 Watson letter. Can you read what it is? Or, Maven, are you there? Maven? Maven?
3: Yes, I'm here.
1: Hey, Maven, how are you doing? Good. So good to have you with us tonight. You're working overtime with all of these images and everything, and I really, really appreciate it. want to give you public kudos for that. Could you read what it is that Bill Hamlin, in 1993, is quoting from Michael Watson?
3: This is just the indented part, correct?
1: Yes, the quotation.
3: Okay, the Church emphasizes the doctrinal and historical value of the Book of Mormon, not its geography. While some Latter-day Saints have looked for possible locations and explanations for Book of Mormon geography because the New York Hill Cumorah does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Cumorah, there are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site.
1: Period. Now that's very interesting because that's very different— And if you could just go ahead and leave it where it is for right now, Maven, we'll scroll down to the footnote here in a second. It's very interesting because this this is different from what we read in the 1990 letter. The 1990 Watson letter says, yeah, it's in Western New York is where Kamora is. And that's where all the battles took place. Now, all of a sudden, William Hamblin is quoting from the same individual, Michael Watson, to the effect that. While some Latter-day Saints have looked for possible locations and explanations for Book of Mormon geography, because the New York Hill Cumorah does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Cumorah. Wait a second, where's this coming from? Three years before in that first Watson letter, it's saying it was in Western New York. Now it's saying the New York Hill Cumorah does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Cumorah. You see how that's very different language, Bill?
2: Do you notice, too, the tendency on the part of church leaders and apologists both that whenever past church leaders speak out of their ass, that the future statements about those leaders always says some Latter-day Saints or some members, and there's never ever the accountability of the authors, both church leadership and the apologists, to ever own up and say lots of leaders and even Moroni himself thought the hill in new york was Kimura,
1: right exactly so this is so interesting to me now if we could look down because it gives a footnote footnote 70 and everybody's dying to find out well where that what the heck is the footnote to this letter from michael f watson that says something quite different from the 1990 letter can we scroll down there just down to footnote 70 so we can see the reference ah there it is footnote 70 correspondence From Michael Watson, Office of the First Presidency, dated April 23rd, 1993.
2: Anytime you share a reference in an article like this, that reference should be able to be located. And I will note, as you continue here, that date is going to be important, right, RFM? 23rd, April 1993.
1: So please write that down. Make a note of it. Mark yeah, it, Elder Rigdon. Let me, uh, 20, are you going to write that down?
2: Yeah, yeah. 23rd of April, 1993.
1: Okay, thank you. So mm-hmm. correspondence from Michael Watson, Office of the First Presidency, 23rd April, 1993. Okay, now we're ready to proceed because naturally, this is a very, very significant document. It's an important document. People actually had the temerity to want to see this letter. Huh. That Bill Hamblin is referencing and quoting in his paper. Now there's there's a picture of Bill Hamblin, and not only did Bill he Hamblin, looks like an honest guy. Oh, I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is <laughs> and was. <laughs> what? Bill, uh. um, please. So, <laughs> I mean, he is deceased now.
2: Okay. Yeah, I wasn't laughing at his death. I was laughing at his at you saying he was an honest man and, and uh, agreeing with me.
1: Well, as the saying goes, the evil that men do lives after them. <laughs> the good is oft interred with their bones so let it be with hamblin now bill hamblin now is asked to see this uh, people are asking to see it they want to see it and the response is interesting the response is uh i lost it the dog ate my homework the dog ate the first presidency letter i can't find it it's not there sorry but William Hamblin avers that he did see it. It was a letter. It was signed by F. Michael Watson. It was on first presidency letter. It was for all intents and purposes, the same format as the 1990, the first Watson letter, only the content of it was different. And the story was that William Hamblin told was that William Hamblin had contacted the office of the first presidency, that he had spoken with the secretary, F. Michael Watson, and that F. Michael Watson had then gotten permission from the first presidency to write a letter of clarification to the first letter. And this letter of clarification makes it so that the first letter says, no, Mesoamerican theory doesn't work. But now the second letter makes room for the Mesoamerican theory, which Bill Hamblin promotes and which farms champions. So we have this little bubble there which Maven did, I think it's great, to, to William Hamlin saying, I totally got this letter from the first presidency. And he's not the only one who says that he saw this letter before it mysteriously got mislaid. Daniel Peterson as well says, and I totally saw it. It's for real, guys. So this is what they're saying. There was a letter. We They both saw it. They also say that there were other people who saw it. But that Bill Hamlin was the one who contacted the office of the first presidency, got this letter, quoted it, and then somehow managed to misplace it. So let me see here if there's a couple of things that I can bring up at this point. We've already gone through. Are,
2: are you saying this letter what? is not around anymore?
1: Yes, that's what I'm saying.
2: And, it and is you, not what? You, well, you said that there's William Hamlin saw it and Daniel C. Peterson saw it. Do you know there's a third person who saw it? Who's that? Matt Roper. And by the way, this also adds to your story, which is that there's actually a second copy of the second letter of Watson's that's also vanished. Notice this, Matt Roper says, in 1993, while I was a student at BYU, I was also part-time employee at the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. Part of my responsibilities then included responding to frequently asked questions about the Book of Mormon, which we often received. I was frequently at the office and remember remember when Brent Hall showed me a fax from Michael Watson, then secretary to the first presidency. Brent allowed me to make a copy of it, which we found very helpful at the time in responding to questions about the 1990 letter, which anti-Mormons at Utah Mission in Marlow, Oklahoma and Watchman Fellowship in Texas were then giving wide circulation. This was also shared with me and others at the time, including some— Who had written farms with questions. Additionally, Professor William Hamblin had also written directly to Michael Watson and received a copy of the same facts from the office of the first presidency as well, which he cited in an article published in the Journal of Mormon Studies 1993. I just want to note, RFM, there are two missing copies of the second Watson letter. Unbelievable.
1: (laughs) So this is very, very interesting that you bring up, and this is going to tie into something that's going to happen much later. But at this point, um, Daniel Peterson is being challenged and William Hamblin is being challenged. Daniel Peterson, between the two of them, was much more prominent on message boards and much more available to be challenged about this. And Daniel Peterson swore up, down and sideways that there was an actual letter signed by um, Michael Watson that actually said this that it was quoted there in 1993 by Bill Hamblin and then subsequently became lost to everyone. The question at some point was raised, "Go, you want to say something about this photograph? Because you're surprising me with all these different graphics now, Bill. Now you're muted and maybe it's a good thing, but go oh, ahead. Sorry. And yeah. Up. This
2: animated image of Dan Peterson working at his home. It's no wonder things get lost. I mean, look around. The guy needs to get a, a housekeeper or something. He's got quite the mess, but uh, there's a used pizza box there in the back. There's a taper on top of the television. Uh, rockstar energy drinks all across the the desk, and dirty laundry everywhere. I just I expect better of Dan. But this explains. I think this is uh, better evidence than than they have of how the letter got lost.
1: I feel this uh, podcast slipping away from my grasp. <laughs> no, no, no! I'm backing <laughs> off now. <laughs> Okay, so trying to stick with the the storyline here as best I can. And I appreciate that, Bill, really. We need some stuff to lighten things up. So I appreciate that. Um, I don't endorse it, but I really think it's funny. Okay, (laughs) so we've got this situation. By the way, even at the time when this happened, and I think I was aware of it maybe sometime after the fact, uh, the first thought that occurred to me is, well, if you've got a letter from the first presidency by the secretary of the first presidency and you lost it, What would be the most obvious thing that you would do, Bill? Well,
2: I would probably, if I had a close connection with those guys and they were able to send me a first letter, I would reach back out and ask if they would send me a second.
1: Yeah, just get a copy. You think these guys don't keep copies of every piece of correspondence that goes out of the first presidency's office? Of course they do. That would be the most obvious thing. Hey, I lost the letter. I apologize. Can you send me a copy? Boom, done. Here it is. But they never do that Hmm. for some reason. And in Mm. fact, there are places where I've gone back and looked at different message boards and there are places where Daniel Peterson is being challenged on that and saying, well, why don't you ask for another copy? And he goes, well, I'm not going to ask for another copy. Why don't you ask for a copy? I'm not going to ask for a copy. And that's the level of discourse that it descends to. So Mm. if they he doesn't even want to ask for a copy, he wants everybody to believe what he's saying because he says it. And then if they challenge it and ask to see the original and they don't believe that it's actually lost or that he doesn't simply want to ask for a copy then it becomes a challenge to Daniel Peterson's integrity and he gets his knickers in a twist about it. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's had any interactions with Daniel C. Peterson will understand exactly what it is that I'm talking about. At any rate, the letter's lost. It remains lost. And in spite of that, however, Daniel C. Peterson is so certain of its authenticity that he allows for this paragraph, this reference to this lost Watson letter to be published in a journal of which he is the editor. And that's in 2004. So that's 11 years later. He allows this to be published. The the first publication was the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Daniel C. Peterson was not the editor of that. Daniel C. Peterson was the editor of a different volume, which was the review of books on the Book of Mormon. They're both Farms publication It's kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They got their Watchtower and their Awake magazine. Well, Farms has their Journal of Book of Mormon Studies as well as the Review of Books on the Book of Mormon. So in 2004, there is an article in the Review of Books on the Book of Mormon. It's an article that's authored by Matthew Roper, whom we have met before. And there it is. It's called Limited Geography and the Book of Mormon, colon,
2: And by the way, Logan's asking where he can go and read all of that back and forth with Dan Peterson on this issue. But I think as you pointed out before we started the episode with me, just you you and me in a conversation earlier today, that used to be on the old Mormon dialogue and discussion board, which all the old archives are gone from. And so now all you can go to is discussmormonism.com, I think. And that discussion board still has the old threads talking about the discussions as they were happening, but the actual discussion is lost, just like the second Watson letter.
1: Yes, and I know that Daniel Peterson would like for this issue to be forgotten after so much time has gone by, but we're here to remind him courteously that it is not forgotten. No, This is a ghost by which he should be haunted yet again, and that's why we're doing this podcast. This should never be forgotten. So this is the journal that Daniel Peterson is the editor of, an article by Matthew Roper titled limited geography and the book of Mormon colon historical antecedents and early interpretations published in 2004. And if we can go to the page in question, there it is, page 260. And if you can read that starting at the top, this is where Matthew Roper is going to cite to the same letter. Now he's not citing the letter because he didn't actually have the letter in his hand. See it's lost. But
2: remember, lost.
1: remember, he actually did have it in his hand. You're, you see, He had his own copy. Here's the thing. I wasn't aware of this quote. This is a slide that has been sprung upon me, but without my knowledge, and it, it overly complicates things, at least to my mind. Maybe it makes things more crazy. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's why you're bringing it up. But look well, at that
2: face. I, Only because as I was doing my own research, I came across the fact that he had a second copy And he also apparently lost his, he's never said whether he still has it or not, but you would think in all these years, if he had a second letter, he would go, Hey, Hey, I've got one too. Mm. But he said, Brent allowed me to make a copy of it. And then later on, he says, professor William Hamlin also had also written directly to Michael Watson and received a copy of the same facts from the office of the first presidency. So I, I, again, I know you formed your outline without knowing this. I came in late to the game and wanted to impress you with my research RFM, but there's a second copy of the second Watson letter, also MIA. Anyway, there's enough of that.
1: Okay, and apparently it's the Backyard Professor's birthday today, and he wanted me to wish him a happy birthday publicly. So, happy birthday, Backyard Professor!
2: Happy birthday to him.
1: I may have been rude, I am, and I may have been incorrect by saying he wanted me to, but that oh, was okay. the impression I got, and that's why I got he you. Me. He didn't say it; you just read
2: between the lines.
1: <laughs> so, happy birthday to you.
2: There you go. Um, awesome.
1: So 2004. So I can, oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I can read this if you want. Um, yeah, would you? Okay. So uh, this is Matthew Roper, who also lost a copy of the second Watson letter. He says, The church emphasizes the doctrinal and historical value of the Book of Mormon, not its geography, agreed Michael Watson, secretary to the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, in a 1993 statement. Uh, While some Latter day Saints have looked for possible locations and explanations, For Book of Mormon geography, because the New York Hill Camorra does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Camorra, in spite of Moroni saying that was the name of the hill. There are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site, any specific site.
1: Right. So what you see there is he's quoting the same language from the 1993 Bill Hamblin article citing the missing letter. The second Watson letter. And if you go down to footnote 107 at the bottom of this page. There it is. And that's what it cites to. See, it says correspondence from Michael Watson. Same date, 23 April 1993. 1993.
2: That's what I've got in my notes that I wrote down.
1: As cited in. William J. Hamblin. And then it cites to the article he wrote in 1993 for the Journal of World Why
2: does he Studies. need to cite William Hamblin when he self-admits he also had a copy of the same damn letter?
1: Well, I don't know. You'll have to ask him on this one. I've got At to tell all? you that. But I just hmm. wanted to to show this to show that it was um, also considered to be valid enough by Daniel Peterson as to be allowed to be cited in a Review of books on the Book of Mormon article where he was the editor of that publication. Okay, so now let's go down here. Oh, my gosh. Now we get to 2009. So that was 2004. We're now to 2009, which is 16 years after 1993. Correct? Am I doing my math right? 16 years later, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, an individual who's associated with farms named Greg Smith or Gregory Smith. You may have heard that name before. He was the one who wrote the hit piece on John DeLynn, which got uh, quashed by, I believe, Elder Holland. There he is. There's our hero, Gregory L. Smith. And actually, I kind of mean that in this one, uh, our hero, because it's because of him that we get some more information. So it's 2009. It's December of 2009. And all this information, by the way, I'm getting from the archived materials at the Discuss Mormonism. Message board. And okay. just
2: a side note, I I was served with alongside Greg Smith at Fair Mormon when I was there. And I know from the lips of John Lynch that Greg Smith is related directly to one of the general authorities at the time. I don't know if that general authority has died because I don't know who the general authority is. I have my hunch. I think it's Elder Holland, but I'm not sure. Um, just based on other Context of conversations, but Greg Smith is directly related to one of the general authorities in the top fifteen of the church. At least at the time I was in Fair Mormon. Uh, also, by the way, just a little side note: Mike Ash, the apologist for Fair Mormon, is uh, his mother is the sister of Dieter Uchtdorf. Uh, so, kind of a cool little thing there too, as well. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, just when you when you hear apologists defending the church. Lots of them have connections to leaders, uh, and there's some nepotism to some degree in that
1: whole thing too. Got Im Himmel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amen, brother. So here's here's Greg Smith. And it's December of uh, 2009, and he publicly announces this earth-shaking discovery has been made. The second Watson letter has been found. He announces. Now, Greg Smith lives in Canada. I think he's in his. A- an anesthesiologist um, likened to Brian Hales, but I believe he is anyway. He lives in Canada. So he's obviously a very intelligent person. I think that's probably true. Um, And he's in Canada. And what he says is that the second Watson letter has been located. It was located in Provo, Utah at farms headquarters. It was located by Matt Roper, And Matt Roper found it in John Sorensen's office with a candlestick. Nothing, huh? Okay. So, anyway, it's not clear exactly why Matt Roper is rifling through the files of John Sorensen, but that's the story that Greg Smith announces. So, Matt Roper's found it after all these years. And after, by the way, all the embarrassment that Dan Peterson and Bill Hamblin have put, been put through because, frankly, uh, you could count the number of people who believe their story about the missing Watson letter on the fingers of one finger. Help me out here, so Roper, no, don't go to this. I, don't I... go to that. Okay, well, I... <laughs> don't go to that. I I don't know what's going on there, and that's just really going to confuse. Oh, you go ahead. You make your point. You well, go my, to it. my point
2: is he clearly wants to impose that it's the same letter that Hamblin also had. Meanwhile. You and I both know that Hamblin says no way is that document you're about to talk about. Is that the thing? And so there's a lot of confusion here. How Roper seems to know that is the one, it's not the one, and there, it just feels like a lot of obfuscation going on here.
1: Well, and it's going to get a little bit more so because uh, you go ahead. You make any comments you, you want. I apologize. No, no, it no. Is, you're good. It, I... is, it is very, very confusing. It's convoluted and it's just a damn letter. It shouldn't have to be so convoluted and confusing with all this apparent contradictions and uh missing letters and all these kinds of things. And uh I I had just gotten to the point where I thought I had kind of a, a lineal story and now you're throwing in this other statement I, I'm that sorry. I hadn't I, before by Matt Roper. I just I
2: don't know how to reconcile the Peterson and Hamblin saying again. I, I probably don't let you go further. For you, go ahead and continue, and I'll jump in and pull my hair out later.
1: Okay, Your <laughs> Honor, I ask that uh, Bill Riel's comments be stricken from the record. Okay, please. <laughs> okay, so back here. Um, oh, so we're, we're with Greg Smith, and Greg Smith says that Matt Roper is snail mailing the second Watson letter to Greg Smith in Canada. And while this is going on, it's taking longer and longer. It's going to end up taking 14 days for it to get from Provo to Greg Smith. And while this is happening, you know, it's been a week and people are on the border saying, well, how long is it going to take for crying out loud? I could get mail from here to Canada and much less than that. So there's all these questions going on, wondering if this is really ever going to show up. But it does. And I think it's on Christmas Eve. And what Greg Smith does is he publishes this. He says, well, I've received it. I said I was going to publish it publicly. He does publish it publicly, but it's not the second Watson letter as it has been described for 16 years by William Hamblin and Dan Peterson. Instead, instead it is a facsimile transmission form. In other words, it's a cover sheet for a facsimile. It is obviously not what they were looking for. By the way, the name Michael Watson does not even appear anywhere on this facsimile. The top of it says facsimile transmission form. It does say Office of the First Presidency, 47 East South Temple, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84150. That date. I think looks that's familiar. where my package came from. Oh,
2: that date looks familiar. I've got on my notes, <clears throat> 23rd April, 1993.
1: That is a key point of evidence. You have a sharp eye there, Mr. Real. Yes, the date of this, according to the fax transmission form, is April 23rd, 1993. The sender's name is not F. Michael Watson. The sender's name is a lady named Carla Ogden. Maybe that's F. Michael Watson's new name. Maybe it is. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he had an operation in the meantime. But no, it's Carla Ogden. And it's delivered to Brent Hall, Farms. So not only does Michael Watson's name not appear on this, Bill Hamblin's name doesn't appear on this because the story was that Bill Hamblin is the one who contacted the office of the first presidency. But this doesn't say it's being given to Bill Hamblin. It says it's being given to Brent Hall, who was the office manager, I believe, for farms, not a researcher, but more of a managerial position. There is. Well, let's just go ahead and read it. Can you read the message? Because there's only one page of the facts it's basically what would normally be the cover sheet but there's nothing attached it's just one page it makes that clear number of pages including this yeah page that's is the dead one.
2: giveaway isn't it the dead giveaway is that right top right hand side number of pages including this page
1: one <laughs> one so can you read the message that's yeah in on the, this we're going to yeah. call this the carla ogden facts as to distinguish it from the michael watson letter
2: yeah, so on the same date of April twenty-third, nineteen ninety-three, Carla Ogden faxes to Brent Hall the message of quote, the church emphasizes the doctrinal and historical value of the Book of Mormon, not its geography. While some Latter day Saints have looked for possible locations and explanations because the New York Hill Camorra does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Camorra. There are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site that has been suggested.
1: All right. Thank you for reading that. You're welcome. So now this is published by Greg Smith. He puts it on the internet. And it is obvious, at least to me, that Greg Smith is chagrined when he receives this because he knows how this letter has been described. It has been told to him by Matt Roper that he's discovered the second Watson letter. It's been mailed to him, and when he receives it, it does not match the description of a letter signed by Michael F. Watson. Instead, it's a fax that's not signed by Michael F. Watson, and the name of Michael F. Watson doesn't even appear on the fax. Now, having said that much, you'll also note that in the facsimile, typically, There is a line of information that's printed at the top of a facsimile form, which indicates where it came from, the date and everything like that. None of that material is found on this facsimile transmission form. And what Greg Smith says when he publishes it, this is why I think he's chagrined. He says, well, here it is. Let the conspiracy theories commence. So it's clear that he recognized this isn't what he had been expecting, but he's going to publish it anyway. And I'm glad that he did so that now we have this. So having said that much, let's go ahead and let's, if we can, and if this is the right time, compare the language in the Mm. message here with what was quoted by, oh no, 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 this isn't the right time there. Yeah. There's also a, a separate document that was associated with this fax. Okay, And this is an undated, typed statement by Brent Hall. Remember, the fax is sent to Brent Hall. It's just Brent at the bottom, but apparently it's Brent Hall. And this is what he says. This is apparently a contemporaneous document to this 1993 fax. Can you read that for us?
2: Yeah, it says, I thought you would be interested in this fax from Michael Watson, Secretary to the First Presidency. We have been receiving a number and of questions. Hang on a second.
1: It's very interesting, this fax from Michael Watson, because the fax is not from Michael Watson.
2: No, nope, from Carla Ogden.
1: Of, regardless of what Bryn Hall says or how he describes it. Go ahead, please.
2: Secretary to the First Presidency, we have been receiving a number of questions from Oklahoma, Texas, where anti-Mormons are using a letter from Brother Watson to a bishop where brother Watson said the church supports only one location for Kamora. Yep, that's all brother Watson's words, you know. And that is the New York location. I talked with him on the phone the other day and told him of the questions that were coming to us. He responded that the first presidency would like to clear up that issue and he would fax me with a clarification. So in other words, the first presidency would like to clarify. So the way Brent frames it, there really should be another formal uh Watson
1: letter, huh? Yes. And that's how he describes it. And yet what it is, is a fact. So what happens now, what happens now is that after this is published, both these documents, the cover letter and the facts, after that's published by Gregory Smith. Now, all of a sudden, all the people who have been anxiously anticipating seeing the second Watson letter and finding out that it's a fax from Carla Ogden begin confronting Daniel Peterson on message boards, specifically the Mormon, uh, I think it was the mad board back then, uh, the Mormon apologetic and dialogue board, the aptly named mad board, as some would call it, are confronting him. And by the way, Brent Metcalf is chief among those who are confronting him about it and holding his feet to the fire and saying, this is not the Michael F. Watson letter that you've described us and led us to believe that existed. So at this point, Daniel Peterson, and this is all in 2009, in December, Daniel Peterson actually begins to question his memory. And I want to give him credit for that, all right? Because that's what I would do. If I see this fax that has the same language in it that is quoted, and it is the same language, by the way, as that's quoted in the 1993 Bill Hamblin article, right? It's the same language. It's got the same date of April 23rd, 1993, which is in that footnote in the 1993 Bill Hamblin article. Yeah, we're not quite to that point yet, Maven. But um, if you've got all those things, then yeah, it would be very natural to start questioning your memory. Did I misremember this? Did I actually see the facts? And this cover letter mentions Michael Watson, so I misremembered it as being an actual letter on letterhead and signed by Michael F. Watson. So I wanna give him credit for that. But it's like, could I possibly misremember this so much? This is what he's posting, Daniel Peterson at the time. And he contacts. William Hamblin, who at the time was in Israel, and he emails William Hamblin and asks him, is it possible that I'm misremembering it? Here's this fax that just got found. Is this the Michael F. Watson letter? And Bill Hamblin gets back to Daniel Peterson and says very tersely, no, that's not it. It was a letter signed by Michael Watson, at which point Daniel Peterson, now having his recollection confirmed by Bill Hamblin, doubles down on, no, this isn't. The second Watson letter, the second Watson letter remains missing and indeed missing even to this very day, which is what January 12th, 2022, when we're recording this podcast. So what I would say the majority of people who were involved in this and certainly Brent Metcalf's opinion is no, this is the second Watson letter and you're misremembering it or mischaracterizing it or whatever you want to call it. But that's it because it's got the same date, the same language which put Daniel Peterson in the uncomfortable position of having to argue that on the same date, April 23rd, 1993, the first presidency office with Michael F. Watson or F. Michael Watson sent a letter to William Hamblin that was signed and on the church letterhead, the first presidency letterhead. And on the same date, coincidentally, Bill, coincidentally on the same date, Carla Ogden, from the first presidency's office sent a fax to Brent Hall at Farms, which had the exact same language in it. So this is the way, it's almost like another two Kimora theory, really, when you think and, about it. And if
2: you were going to, if they were going to knock out two birds with one stone and try to resolve this issue from multiple people asking the question, it seems as though you would send the same letter to both people, right?
1: Well, it would kind of be a little bit easier because you can huh. see if, if you're watching this, you can see that the facts is something that Carla, apparently Carla Ogden had to type out on a typewriter where she typed all that out, the information and the the language in the message section.
2: That language so, too, by the way, that language is interesting.
1: Why is it interesting? Well, I've seen that language in other places. Oh, I know that you have. Now, it was also, and uh, we're running long here, so we probably won't be able to put this up and compare it. But it was Brent Metcalf who pointed out that the language in the Carla Ogden facts seemed to mirror in many respects, not identically, but obviously there is a relationship between the language in the facts and the language that was in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. There was an article there on the Hill Cumorah, it was written by David Palmer the same fellow who wrote the 1981 book and it's very obvious that the language is similar in fact there are like three phrases that are identical and when you compare them you can see it so there's the Kimura or article in the in the encyclopedia of mormonism which was published by the way in 1992
2: yeah here so, it is right at the end it says um
1: you can start with because.
2: Yeah, because the New York site does not readily fit the Book of Mormon description of Book of Mormon geography, some Latter-day Saints have looked for other possible explanations and locations, including Mesoamerica. Although some have identified possible sites that may seem to fit better, Palmer, quoting himself. Yeah, I remember you saying say that to yourself.
1: That's called I a said vanity. that last week, yeah. That's a vanity quote.
2: There are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site that has been suggested. There, by the way, they're admitting there that the geography doesn't work or there are other problems of some sort, that no location is a good fit.
1: Right. And so let me just talk about the language, and I want to get to your point because it's a very important point. But here's where we have some highlights. The paragraph at the top is from that Kumora article in the encyclopedia of mormonism from 1992 written by david palmer below is the language from the message on the carla ogden facts from 1993 which is a year later 1993 after the publication of the encyclopedia of mormonism in 1992 and you can look at that and uh, you can just look there at the highlighted sections in both and you can see that there's an obvious relationship and probably even a dependence between the two and it it would make sense that the facts that came out in 1993 was probably dependent upon the language of the article which came out in 1992 the year before
2: seems strange that the first presidency would be quoting david palmer in a letter to uh resolve this issue
1: well right and so um the response then from daniel peterson who is no I mean, he's no uh, amateur at making excuses for things and coming up with uh, somewhat convoluted explanations for contradictory facts or difficult facts. Um, He ends up saying, well, you know, the office of the first presidency was probably sending these types of letters out all the time. And so they had some kind of boilerplate that they would just put into them. All this purely speculative, by the way, in order to account for these strange set of facts between uh, the date. April 23rd, 1993, and the language being identical. So I have talked about this language being identical. It's actually not identical. And this is something that is interesting, all right? Because if we've got anything that shows the language of the facts, which, by the way, uh, 1993 is almost certainly the second Watson letter. And if we have that facts and we can compare it to The 1993 article that was written by William Hamblin, where he quotes from the second Watson letter. Remember that? All right. If you look at the language, it's all the same. It does bracket for Book of Mormon Geography, right? That's, That's a bracketed part in the middle in the Hamblin article. It ends, there are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site, period, end of quote. And then it says footnote 70, right? Every word of that is identical, beginning with the church, emphasizes, all the way down to and any specific site, except that in the Carla Ogden facts, there are four more words after the word site, after and any specific site, because it's been underlined and read by Maven. Thank you again. In the Carla Ogden facts from 1993, it says, and any specific site that has been suggested. That's important because those four words get taken out when it is quoted in 1993 by William Hamblin. And by the way, he commits the scholarly faux pas of not indicating that he has omitted four words from the end, which would be properly done either by including the freaking four words or ellipses. To show that something is missing, he just puts a period there to indicate to anybody reading it, there is nothing else there. But actually, from the facts, we can see that there were four more words. So the question then becomes, why would William Hamblin, who's an advocate of the Mesoamerican theory, leave out those four words, Bill? So where it says there are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site that has been suggested, which is what the facts actually says. He simply quotes it there are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site, period.
2: Yeah. Any it, thoughts on that? Yeah, because it also crushes a Mesoamerican
1: theory, too. Yes, because that has obviously been suggested. Yeah. So it appears that he left off those last four words from the Carla Ogden facts. And then did so in order to not undermine the very Mesoamerican theory that he's promoting and that he is quoting this facts in order to make room for, even while he's identifying it as correspondence from F. Michael Watson, the secretary of the first presidency. All right. I think we were almost getting to the conclusion now. Yep. Oh, that was the other thing that you had said that I wanted to circle back to. This language is very damaging. You know, you would think that in the entirety of North, South and Central America, it's a lot of ground. That there would be some place that would fit the description of the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon is supposed to be historical. It's believed to be historical by most faithful and observant Mormons. And yet the language from the facts from the first presidency 1993 is there are no conclusive connections between the Book of Mormon text and any specific site. And whether you put a period at the end of that, or continue it, that has been suggested. Why on earth would that be the case?
2: Yeah. Why would no geography work? Why would no, why would no area's context have the, the archaeology or the things that we should expect to find, the plants that are mentioned, the animals that were there, why does nothing fit? What what would be the most rational conclusion based on the fact that nothing fits RFM?
1: Well, maybe that it's not really historical. Hmm. Hmm. And I know a lot of people back when I was an apologist, they always want to talk about, well, when Jesus came to visit the Nephites, there was all these destructions and the mountains and everything getting moved around. So it, it moved the geography all kershimmel so that now it doesn't match. Of course, the problem Man. is, is that It's Mormon who's writing these geographical elements into the book of Mormon. And he lived, oh, geez, hundreds of years after Jesus came. Yeah. Hmm. So the geography that Mormon was acquainted with would have been post-apocalyptic geography. So it should still be the same today. Even if um, one goes to the place to say that the upheavals were so great when Jesus came that it actually changed the geography in substantial ways, something which is unfortunately not verified by science either, that there was such an apocalyptic upheaval that changed the geography. Okay, so I wanted to come back to that. And now in conclusion, in conclusion, I wanna say what it is that I think it's pretty obvious that happened, okay? I can't prove this, but this fits the facts, I think, pretty well. And I think that uh, Brent Metcalf agrees with this. There was never a second Watson letter. The Farms people were very, very miffed by the 1990 Watson letter because it did not make room for their pet theory in Mesoamerica. Then they wanted to get a second letter to clarify the first letter. In other words, to make it so that there was room for the Mesoamerican theory. And somebody, whether it's Bill Hamblin or Brent Hall, contacted the office of the first presidency. They wanted to get a second letter, which would have the same authoritative status as the first letter, but they were not able to get it. If they could have, they would have. And I think on the other end of it, if F. Michael Watson could have written one for them, he probably would have, but he didn't. Instead, he has carla ogden send a fax that doesn't have his name on it doesn't have michael watson's name on it at all no he's way away from this one and has her send this fax which appears to have an association with the article that's already in the encyclopedia of mormonism well they get this fax they have this fax i mean they send this fax around they make copies of the facts they have them Uh, John Sorensen had one, remember, in 2009, 16 years later in his office. Everybody and their dog at farms has a copy of this fax. It's a big deal. And then in 1993, William Hamblin quotes this fax and mischaracterizes it as a letter. He says correspondence from Michael F. Watson gives the same date, uses the same language.
2: Except and, that he takes the last four letter or four words out and ruins the context, which would crush his theory as well.
1: He describes the letter that he had wanted to get, but that they did not get. And so naturally, what ends up happening is people want to see the letter. Well, they know they don't have the letter because they purposely mischaracterized it. They gilded the lily. All right. Correspondence. Yeah, it could be a letter. Well, I guess it could be a fax, too. You can see how they're using these terms intentionally in order to give a false impression as to what this was. So now people naturally want to see the letter. Well, they know that if they produce this fax, the jig is going to be up and they will be caught red handed mischaracterizing the letter, which is what they knew they were doing all along. And therefore, even though everybody in their dog has a copy of the facts, they don't produce the facts. They simply say, we lost the letter. And that's where the missing Watson letter comes into play. There was never a second Watson letter. This is my, my speculation. There was never a second Watson letter. It was always the Carla Ogden facts. And the reason the second Watson letter became missing is because they didn't want to produce the facts so that people could see what it was that they were actually quoting and then could hold their feet to the fire over their mischaracterization, or at least Bill Hamlin's mischaracterization in his 1993 article of it being a letter from Michael Watson.
2: Yeah, it it hurts in two points. One is that it would have shown that Hamlin left off those last four words, which seems absolutely intentional. And the second thing is that this form we're looking at on the screen right now, this fax from Carla Ogden, it simply isn't of the magnitude or strength that the first Watson letter is. And so it really wouldn't be enough to put down that first letter.
1: Right. And one of the funny things that was happening back in 2009 Uh, Oh, and let me get to that because what happens now is that Matt Roper, it's been 16 years. This is a a sort of a cloud that's been over farms for 16 years. In fact, anybody talking about the second Watson letter does it as shorthand for uh, Mormon apologist duplicity. Uh, It becomes sort of a, a, a byword, a hiss and a byword to just use that expression. So finally, all of a sudden it's been 16 years and Greg Roper gets word that it's been discovered by, I say Greg Roper, Greg Smith in Canada it gets word that's been discovered by Matt Roper in Utah while he's going through John Sorensen's office. Greg Smith immediately thinks this is a second Watson letter. It gets sent to him. He sees it's a fact. It's not a Watson letter the way it's been described. He publishes it anyway and says, let the conspiracy theories commence.
2: Let me show you. I'm actually, I'm going to backtrack what I was saying earlier. That quote from Roper he wrote that quote, it looks like uh, January 16th of 2017. This was the thing I read earlier where he had his own copy. When I under, So let me clarify. Here's what I think my original thought is wrong. What Roper's saying is that he saw the Carla Ogden facts, and it's the same document as William Hamblin had. And it seems as late as 2017... Roper is, in his kind, non-contentious way, seeming to agree with you, RFM, that those are one in the same letter, the Carla Ogden facts and the William Hamblin claim of a second Watson letter. And this seems to be Roper's way of saying, look, I saw the letter, it's the same one Hamblin had, and it is, in fact, the Carla Ogden facts. And, and I, th- I guess what I'm saying is that it, even some apologists aren't agreeing with Peterson and Hamblin on this one.
1: Right. And according to Brent Metcalf, he knew a lot of LDS apologists who weren't buying this. They wanted yeah. to, but they just couldn't. It was too much for them to swallow. Yeah. Now, here's what I want to do. Before phone calls, I want to go. This is this is actually the last part. And I'm sorry this has been long, but uh, treachery, seek it out. Let the doors be locked.
2: Before you do that, just people are welcome to start calling in Uh, for the the Victory for Satan segment, 662 Mormons, or 662-667-6667, and uh, Maven will screen your calls behind the scenes while RFM is sharing his final thoughts.
1: Thank you so much. Oh, and Maven is screening right now? Yep. Okay, so do you have access to the Fair Mormon article on this issue? Because now that we know what really happened and the facts related to it, we can see the current duplicity by the good people at fair Mormon, as they describe what transpired
2: by the Uh, way, one note before you read that, I'm going to have you read it. If I was F Michael Watson, you can bet your ass. I wouldn't put my name on a second paper when fair Mormon blames me for the first letter in the first place, Right? right? When, when they, when their wording is the first presidency secretary apparently answered a question according to his own understanding. So they threw F. Michael Watson under the bus. So no wonder he didn't want to put his name on a second letter.
1: Right. So um, let me go. You've got it up on the screen. Yep. So let's go ahead and let's write this. This is the question they're answering. Did the first presidency identify the New York Hill Cumorah as the site of the Nephite final battles? Okay, that's their question. And then they have a sub Title, which is what you just read. This is what they say: the first presidency secretary apparently answered a question according to his own understanding. No revelatory basis exists for this position. That's why we emphasize the language of the 1990 Watson letter, where he's not acting on his own. You know this what? He's a rogue first presidency secretary? Yeah, I don't think so.
2: No, the first paragraph and the last paragraph of that first Watson letter make it clear that he is operating under the direction of the first presidency, Um, and, and yet Fair Mormon doesn't want to be honest here and say the first presidency declared something and then changed their mind.
1: Right. So this article goes on. We're not going to read the letters again, but here's what it is, and this is currently up there on the Fair Mormon website. The first presidency's secretary apparently answered a question according to his own understanding and then, at the direction of the first presidency, (laughs) later clarified slash corrected his statement to indicate that while many Latter-day Saints have expressed opinions about the location of Cumorah or other Book of Mormon geography issues, the church has no official geography. No revelatory basis exists for any geographical scheme outside of the Book of Mormon text itself. And then as an introduction to the 1990 letter, it says a letter from the secretary to the first presidency said that the Hill Camorra in Western New York state is the same as referenced in the Book of Mormon. It actually says more than it says the battles happened there, but then they do quote the entirety of the letter. And if we can scroll down past the letter, are you able to do that bill? You're awesome.
2: No, no, but Maven's doing it. She's the one that put it up on the screen for us.
1: Oh, okay. She's multitasking. She's amazing. And then it goes on to say uh, two statements made available within the next three years clarified the church's opinion on the matter. Wait a second. Two statements? Hmm. What? Okay. Uh, It is apparent that Brother Watson seems to have been speaking on his own understanding of the matter. How many times did I have to say that, Bill?
2: It's not apparent by the way. It's not apparent at all. It's, it's the least apparent thing I've come across in months.
1: And that's saying something. Yeah. So he's, he's, it's apparently his own understanding and not as an official declaration of church policy, two statements made available within the next three years, clarify the church's opinion on the matter. I'm sorry. There's some redundancy here because some of these things they put in uh, a field to try and highlight them. They think those are more important points. The first was the publication of the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. Although not an official statement of church policy, two members of the Quorum of the Twelve, Elder Oaks and Maxwell, served as advisors during the production of the Encyclopedia. By the way, Elder Oaks and Maxwell, I think I mentioned before, they are on the side of trying to accommodate science and geography and demographics in coming up with a geography for the Book of Mormon, at least more open to that idea than other people such as Marky Peterson and Joseph Fielding Smith. Believe it or not, not all the apostles are of one mind on every issue, or probably on any issue. Thus, we have the following statement published in 1992. There they quote the paragraph from the David Palmer article in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. If we can go past that. Then it says, on April 23rd, 1993, F. Michael Wasson arranged for a clarification letter after a discussion with a Farms staffer. They're not going to mention the name because that gets complicated, whether it's Bill Hamblin or Brent Hall. The text is similar and consistent with what was published in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. See, they even recognize the similarity that was published there the previous year. And there they quote the language from the Bill Hamblin article. Notice that this is from the Bill Hamblin article because it leaves out the last four words from the Carla Ogden facts that has been suggested. Okay. Now they go on. Since the text of this letter was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which was the 1993 article, some critics, damn those critics, some critics have charged the farm's authors with either manipulating the church into sending the letter or forging the letter text altogether. Well, actually, I'm not sure that they... really charging that what they were charging was where the heck's the letter and why don't you have it i guess some some probably did uh accuse them of forging the letter text altogether. and then matt roper of the neil a maxwell Mm. institute for religious scholarship which is farms 2.0 located a faxed copy of the same statement sent from the office of the first presidency along with its cover page along with its cover page right that's the brent hall Uh, cover page and sent fair a copy with permission to post it. The 1993 facts was sent by a senior executive secretary for the office of the first presidency, Carla Ogden to Brent hall of farms. It says sister Ogden continues to serve in this position as of 2009. Apparently the article somewhat dated since it's now 2022, the text of the facts matches exactly the text reported to have been in the response by Watson as described in the farm's review, except for the last four words.
2: There, so fairs, trying I, by the to, way, to- I,
1: for those listening, I added except for the last four words, because the fair Mormon article is presenting it as exact. It does produce or reproduce the facts, but it says it's exactly the same. But it doesn't mention the fact that Bill Hamblin cut off the last four words, which he didn't like when he was quoting this facts in his 1993 article.
2: Fair would like you to believe that there was a second Watson letter with this page as a cover page. But as we noted earlier, that's almost certainly not the case. And this page backs that up by saying that this page, counting this page, there was only one page.
1: Yes. And a fellow named Trevor saying, what did Michael Watson do for me to call him F. Michael Watson? (laughs) F. Michael Watson. (laughs) I think that was his yeah. uh, his choice. He used the first initial. And if we knew what his first name was, we'd probably understand why he used yeah. that initial. F is that there anything guy. more to that fair Mormon <laughs> article? I think that's it, isn't it?
2: Man, they're only adding to the obfuscation. They're certainly not being fair, no pun intended, or maybe there was. And they sure as hell are trying to muddy the waters here so that people can't really figure shiz out.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there you have it. There is the mystery of the second Watson letter and there is perhaps the single best example of Mormon apologetics getting caught with their pants down. And tonight we've had the pleasure of whacking their pee's. <laughs> I
2: will tell you now having dove into all of this because you hinted at this last week, it becomes quite obvious to me that William Hamblin, Dan Peterson, and the folks at fair Mormon have zero desire to lay these issues out. honestly, and to let people make up their own mind, they are all, all of these statements by all three of those, either entity or people, uh, they're carefully worded and they're, they only go as far as they have to. And they don't have the evidence that backs up what they're saying. And the evidence is steeply facing the other
1: way, the other direction. Okay. who's That putting wasn't this me. Picture up?
2: <laughs> I didn't Wait do a that second. this time.
1: <laughs> is that Photoshopped? I think that's Photoshopped. Oh, but anyway, man, this that's is a-, a picture of Dan Peterson. And he appears to be stroking something on the wall. I don't know if that is a tapir penis or something.
2: Yeah, uh, I but don't know. I, yeah, that could be a Curlom right there.
1: I think it's Photoshop. But this is why one of the many nicknames that Dan Peterson has is Long Dong Tapir. <laughs> and if you get that, you should be ashamed of yourself.
2: <clears throat> I, that reference I got. <laughs> what? Well, yeah. Heidi Ho Silver. Yes, sir.
1: Mm, yes. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm right. getting envious. You're getting shamed and I'm getting envious,
2: yeah, yeah. i'm I got that right. I finally got an rFm reference that maybe most of the other people didn't.
1: You're like Captain America in the First Avengers movie.
2: That's right. I don't I, okay.
1: <laughs> I got that reference,
2: yeah, <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, I'm looking up at the call room and there's not a caller yet. So if anybody wants to call there's- in,
1: there's no callers. There's no all? call. I
2: think everybody's jaws hit the floor. They are surprised that because they had thought that the people at fair Mormon and they had always held Dan Peterson and Lou Midgley and Bill Hamblin, they've they'd held them in such high esteem and high regard for their honesty. Well,
1: it that like I Dan think like Dan Peterson was holding something else in that photo.
2: Yeah, that was a, that was a curlam, Is that how they say curlom? How did, how are those animals spoken of?
1: Well, it's hard to say since it's Jaredite is kind of a dead language at this it, point.
2: It's all made up anyway. How, How would you those? pronounce <laughs> a made up word?
1: I say kuralam. I, I kiralam. give it three syllables.
2: That was a kuralam. The genitals of a kuralam. That's what that was on the wall.
1: Right. And by the way, the overarching thing here that's going on, which I find really interesting, is even if you take everything at face value and ex, you accept what uh, Bill Hamblin and Dan Peterson have said about uh, there being an actual letter that got lost, what this is is a classic illustration of the farm's scholars rushing in to try and rescue the church from itself. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you saw the fair Mormon thing written like there's, and the letters, by the way, uh, the correspondence about them, this idea that Mormonism hasn't officially held any position. There's they've, they've been, you know, tight lipped and quiet on the whole issue is absolutely BS in light of last week's episode where the church for at least 150 years couldn't stop talking about how it all happened in the New York area.
1: No, absolutely. They they know less and less. They are, they're becoming the modern instantiation of the know-nothing party. So with and prophets,
2: seers, and revelators, they know less and less every day.
1: Yeah, it's sad. Hmm. Maybe they need like 30 instead of just 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. Maybe they had to decrease them a few. Maybe. But here's the thing. The thing is that the only position that the church apparently has today is number one, that they don't have a position on geography, but the only position they affirmatively hold is that there is no geography that actually matches the book of Mormon.
2: Yeah. There's no place suggested that fits the book of Mormon's context around what the geography should look like.
1: And to be more clear and accurate, they do have a position that the book of Mormon events took place somewhere in the Western hemisphere. So they've Mm -hmm. narrowed it down that far. But even giving all of that expanse of North, South, Central America, their position is that there's no site that matches Book of Mormon geography.
2: And the three that have been suggested, you've got the Heartlanders with the Heartland theory. Right. You've got um, the the Fair Mormon and other major apologists who hold the Mesoamerican theory. And then you've got the church and Joseph Smith, which held the uh, hemispheric model, and the church in 2022, admits that none of the sites suggested match the geography of the book of Mormon. Yes. Okay.
1: Just so we're clear. Thank <laughs> you. So is, is there nobody calling? I was hoping that Dan Peterson oh, might ring us up.
2: I've got a couple right now, so we okay. will go to, uh, I don't have a name, but we'll go to a caller who has a personal story about Dan Peterson. Caller you're on Mormonism live with RFM and Bill real. Uh, what's your experience with uh, taper Dan and keep it clean. Okay.
4: Okay. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah.
3: No, and no, you're no, really no. quiet, if you can talk a little
2: louder, my friend.
4: Oh,
5: okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I good? can
2: hear you but barely. All right.
5: Is
2: that any
3: better? Yeah, yeah. What's
2: what's your experience with Dan Peterson?
3: Okay. So um when I was hadn't all the way left the church yet, but everything was just really, really weighing heavily on me. Somehow I came across uh, one of Dan's um, blog posts, you know, articles or whatever, and I didn't realize that it was his like personal blog. I just thought it was some article that he had written that somebody had posted somewhere, and and it just got me kind of incensed. Um, and I I wrote a comment in the comment section. Well, wait a second, wait um, a second,
1: hold hold, hold hold, can you hear me? Are you there? Yeah. Okay. This is RFM. Yeah. What what made you incensed about Dan Peterson's article?
3: Um I, I I this will make sense to you when I say this, but I don't remember the content of the article, but it was the the condescending uh nature of just the I mean he's a polemicist, you know, like and and uh it just I realized that in the past I would have like accepted that like oh he's on the lord's side he's he's fighting for the church and yeah there's these nasty people out there but once you start to like see the other side of the equation and you become the person on the other side and you realize you're not a bad person you're just following the truth right then you become the target of that um that rhetoric and it's disgusting it feels icky and i addressed some comment like dan like i like This is terrible the way that you talk about people, and um, like I can't take this anymore, or something like that. And uh, he and Lewis Midgley ganged up, and it turned into this whole thing on there where I was going through this experience where I had commented because I was hurting, right? And and I get it, like you know, but still, uh, the feeling of these people who are defending the church being so nasty and vile and condescending. Like I'm the idiot here. I'm the I'm the dummy, you know? And I used to look up to him and think, Oh, well, at least we have somebody who's really smart on our side. And he uses big words and he seems very intelligent and everything. But when you actually look at like the the arguments that are made and the defenses that are given, it's just nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And I feel like my 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 son's like thirteen years old could poke through half of this stuff just on reading it and saying well, that's not a good way to argue a point or, you know what I mean? Like, and that feeling of being um, excoriated by these guys and having my orthodoxy called in the question and all of a sudden Lou Midgley gets on and says, Oh, I'll just look this guy up. And uh, he's not legitimate. He's not really a member of the church. And it was so icky that that was like it for me. Like, there's just no, no way. No, I can't be a part of this anymore. And I was like, it gave me that push that I needed, you know? Cause you're, you're worried about, well, I don't want to hurt people's feelings or what about my family and what about all this? And that incident right there was like, definitely gave me the push that I needed. Like, you know what? Screw you too. Yeah, because I was already you. there, but like, you know, that was it for me. And uh, I hear what anyway, you're saying. Thanks, and thanks
1: I, you. this I, was a- I've had the same experience and trodden the same path. It wasn't the reason I exited or anything, but definitely, uh, viewing Daniel Peterson, uh, in one way, before seeing him uh, react to me personally, like he did to critics of the church, when I'm just trying to ask a question and get some information or clarification. And absolutely, Lewis Midgley, you got attacked by the midge. Daniel C. Peterson's crummy little toady. Yeah. By the way, you now know what the see like in Daniel C. Marcus in the Christmas course. Boom, Chakalaka! He got it. Did you get that one, Bill? This is the second time I've used it. I can
2: barely time. hear him.
1: Okay. But okay, so anyway, it was actually me. So the deal is this you found out what the C and Daniel C. Peterson stands for, which is condescending.
2: Yeah, Daniel Condescending Peterson. I've had the same experience with him and Midgley both. Um, just any time and myself or other people pushing back at the uh what I thought was demonstrably absurd narratives that some of the apologists would give on these issues. And anytime they got resistance, they really resorted to mean spiritedness and uh, personal attacks and ad hominem. Yeah. Thank you so much for the call. Yep. So our next caller is Trevor. Trevor, you are on Mormonism live uh, with RFM and bill real. What's on your mind tonight, my friend.
3: Hey guys. Um, I don't really have anything To add to tonight's topic, Um, I just wanted to say that um, I've been uh, out of the church for 10 years and was a part of it for 17. And I've learned more from you two and John DeLynn in the past year with being out of work uh, because of COVID. And it's just really refreshing to hear the truth and to. You know, just to hear everything um, that I felt was not really accurate um, when I was in the church. So I, I love you guys, and I hope you keep doing what you're doing, and you're making a difference.
2: Thank you very much, Trevor. I um, yes. appreciate that.
1: It is really amazing when there's such a narrow band of information about the LDS church, which the information is vast. I mean, good, bad, and indifferent it's vast it's complicated i don't think there's anybody even uh the most studied person who would even claim to know everything there is to know about lds history it's only been 200 years for crying out loud right so it's vast but the church spends all the time talking about this very narrow band of information and then when you get beyond that and find out how much there is yeah i know exactly what you're talking about It's a a disappointing thing. I think the church does a disservice to its members by not giving them a better grasp of um, the breadth and scope of church history.
2: Yeah, yep. Our next caller, we got a couple more. Uh, Terry's on the line. Terry, you're on Mormonism Live with Bill Reel and RFM. What's on your mind?
0: Hey, it's good to uh, talk to you. This is the first time I've ever called into any show of any kind ever. (laughs) <laughs> so, <Yay>. so anyway <laughs> you guys got me going uh but you know it got me to thinking um that maybe this should be called the church of the missing you know there's the missing first vision account missing gold plates missing papyrus missing journals uh missing histories missing artifacts missing geographies missing, missing prophecies it's like yeah, it's like how many things can be missing and everything's still okay.
1: <laughs> that's a great point. The only thing they don't miss is the typing receipts. No, that's
2: the one thing that gets account- – by the way, I went back, RFM, just a little note. I went back and looked at the first handbooks of instruction, and they're only like 12 pages long.
1: How old are those? Uh,
2: eighteen. It's eighteen hundreds. I have to go back and, and look, but it's mid eighteen hundreds, maybe late eighteen hundreds, eighteen seventy ish. But the very first editions of the Church Handbook of Instruction were only twelve to fifteen pages long, and about eighty percent of that was on how to make sure nobody steals the tithing and it's all accounted for and turned in correctly.
1: Well, it's still a very important uh, matter in the LDS Church. In fact. Uh, you always have to have two people who count the receipts at the ward building, uh, one to keep the other one honest or at a minimum accurate. And tithing is also, I believe, the only commandment that gets its own yearly meeting with the bishop to make sure that you are paying it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You've got to sit down with a good bishop and declare your tithing status.
1: We'll, we'll get suggest you as
2: good bishops. We'll get you whether you. Whether you set the appointment or not, we'll find you.
1: And, and that that priority that's given to tithing with the yearly meeting with the bishop suggests that maybe it's the most important commandment to the church. Yeah.
2: It, you can bet
1: your ass it is. <laughs> All right. Backyard professor
2: has a personal story about Dan Peterson. Wait, is is uh, he Kiss on? shirts? Okay, hang you? on a second.
1: Hang on. Carrie? I mean, backyard? Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, can you get a little closer here. to the phone?
0: I am closer to the phone.
1: Okay. Can you or, hear me? Uh, yeah, but not really well. So it, Bill and I have a little ditty we want to sing to you. Are you ready? Uh-oh. I mean, ha- yeah. Happy birthday, happy birthday to, to you. Happy birthday to you. you. Who's at the late Happy birthday, birthday dear the Backyard, backyard professor. professor!
2: Happy birthday to you!
0: I am flattered. Thank you. That was very nice.
1: Not everybody has "Happy Birthday" sung <laughs> to them on Mormonism Live. I've got to tell you.
0: Well, I wanted to celebrate right here in the chat room and with you two, so. I do have a story about Daniel Peterson. I will share uh, an experience I had online with him a couple years ago. I went over to his blog and got commenting in the comments. And I brought up the idea of the debate that Bill Hamblin had with Philip Jenkins, and where Philip Jenkins just basically defeated Bill Hamblin. And Daniel Peterson did never show up to help Bill out. It was all just the junior tier apologists that went
1: and helped him, right? Right. He left him hanging in the wind and on so, that one, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And so
0: Dan Peterson told me, well, Bill Hamblin did just fine. I guess that went over your head. And so, I responded back to him, well, Bill Hambron lost, and that didn't go over my head. <laughs> and ever since then, I wasn't welcome <laughs> So, anyway, I just wanted to... I, that one caller that said Dan Peterson is so condescending and all, it is unfortunately true, but um, it is because he is a... Retro, he can't afford to ever be wrong or make any mistakes. And I don't know where he gets that from, but I've noticed that pattern for the last 20 years in him. He never commits to a specific position in a debate online where he will lose a point. And so I think that's one that comes across as him being arrogant, um, a know-it-all, condescending, and that is because, unfortunately, he is arrogant, he wants to imagine he's a know-it-all, and he is condescending. So there you have it. But this was a great show, you guys. Thank you. It was well done, lots of good information. Um, yeah, I lived through that era, that experience when they were arguing back and forth on the message boards about that. And that yeah. was pretty amazing.
2: Thanks for calling in, Kerry. Yes, Kerry, anyway, I'll tell you, I understand what you.
0: thank you guys for.
2: Sounds good. Thank you. Yep. Happy Go birthday, ahead. my friend. Kudos to you, R.F.M. for putting the this episode together.
1: Well, thank you. Like Kerry says, you know, people who think they know everything are really annoying to those of us who actually do. There you, there you go. <laughs> all right, we've got three callers. All three of you. If
2: we can try to keep it to about a minute or less, I'd like to get all three of you in. And so, Mr. Todd, we'll start with you. Uh, what do you have for us tonight, my friend?
0: Well, starting off, uh, well, R.F.M. and I have something in uh, common. I am from the city of Waco.
1: Waco. Yes, we spent many a pleasant evening at the Branch Davidian Compound together, I (laughs) think.
2: There you go. Uh, Just hopping around from one high-demand fundamentalist religion to another. Yeah. Caller, go ahead, my friend. Um,
0: Okay. My question is, I am not Mormon. However, I have studied it. And I do not, and I'm not arrogant, but I don't understand how anybody, after studying it, could uh, continue on in LDS religion because there aren't any true uh, history or in, uh, you know, whenever you study uh, Smith and everything else, I'm just wondering how could anybody uh, continue as a Mormon?
2: Um, We'll drop the call here, but we'll answer your question away from the call from you, my friend. Okay. But appreciate the phone call. We'll answer that. Okay. All right. I I think the simple answer is the church controlled the information. It gave me one story and it told me that that was the only story to be trusted RFM. And I had very little positive influence to go outside of the correlated curriculum, the dominant narrative and learn anything else. And so it was at least for a while, it was easy to maintain that narrative. And then When you start to discover the messiness, the apologists swoop in and tell you all these really brilliant answers that require lots of mental gymnastics. And you want it to be true so bad because everything you have is tied up in it. Time, energy, resources, identity, family relationships, and about every other thing that you can think of that should belong to you. And uh, it would cost a lot to deconstruct that. So you buy the mental gymnastics until you don't.
1: Yeah, and I think the percentage of members of the church or Mormons who actually study their religion. You're talking yeah. about acts, uh, controlling yeah, yeah. the information from the top down. The ones who actually study the religion are probably a very small percentage. I think it's probably about the same percentage as, uh, say, Baptists um, or other Christian religions. I consider Mormonism to be a Christian religion. Um, any other Christian religion that actually studies their scriptures or the history yeah. of the New Testament. And I think that generally, generally, those who study their religion the most deeply are the most likely to become disillusioned and perhaps move on. It's not always the case. Dan Peterson, Bill Hamblin, they're obvious uh, exceptions to what I'm talking about. But I think that by and large, those who are in the church and study it the most deeply are the most likely to say, okay, I'm going to take a pass on this. Me, it took 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not something that necessarily happens yeah. overnight. 20, it's very difficult. 20 here. Um, we'll try to
2: sneak two more in. Luke, you're on the line, uh, Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What do you think about the second Watson letter?
5: Um, hey, uh, great episode tonight. It was kind of along the same lines of what you guys were just talking about that I wanted to mention. Um, it was on my mission. I was in the office as a secretary for about nine months and we spent so much time in there that I had exhausted all of the uh, uh, audio that was saved on the computer and this is was what, about 2010 and so I started searching out, a um, little against the rules, but I started searching out uh, Mormon content that I could justify listening to uh, while that, working.
1: And so is that on the internet?
5: I, I came across yeah. Yeah. It was on the internet. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I came across uh, Dan Peterson's work and it's in, in, in the stuff of the, the podcast he was publishing. And so I wanted to kind of <laughs> uh, take a positive attitude tonight and express a little gratitude. Cause I think I, if, if not for that exposure on my mission and, and making me think that I understood Mormonism so well and understood the, 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 the hard side of Mormonism that, I don't know if after my mission i would have sought out the sources that led me to the truth if it wasn't for um being exposed to to the apologetic stuff so um yeah that's all all
1: right thank you yeah luke that's a path that's frequently walked i know that i was an apologist heavily into it for a decade in the 1980s during my decade of my 20s and that really exposes you to a lot of the issues it's done with the intent of finding the answers and defending the church but it can leave its marks and it can ultimately lead people out of the church. Yeah.
2: And I think this might end up being our last caller, although I do see word that maybe Brent Metcalf is trying to call in. So
1: oh, great! Well, Maven,
2: Maven will field his call if it comes in, but otherwise this will be our last one. Eric, you are uh, on Mormonism live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. Your thoughts on the second Watson letter.
3: Well, I tell you what, I'll keep it close if Brent's trying to get in. But I I did just want to say, real quickly, about uh, Tapir Dan. You know, one thing, uh, no matter how much he frustrates me, no matter how much his uh, dishonesty galls me, there's one thing that makes me feel better. And that's knowing that the church that Dan loves, the church that Dan has given his life up to protect, kicked his ass out of the Maxwell Institute. In order to protect the good name of John Delaney, and Dan will never ever be able to get over that.
1: Mm. Great point, thank you. Yeah, my that's got a sting. You're right. Yeah, I think it was back in 2012, if I'm remembering quite correctly, when that happened, and Daniel C. Peterson was unceremoniously cashiered while he was away overseas. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm only smiling because Bob Bob Crockett is now in the in the queue here. Yay! And so I'm going to put Bob through. Bob, you're on Mormonism Live. Bob, good evening to you. It's your good friend Bill Real. And uh, uh, what do you have for us tonight uh, on our show with uh, Radio Free Mormon and uh, the Second Watson Letter? Hi, Bob.
4: Well, I do have a hi hi RFM. How you doing? Hey, how you guys doing? Hey, I have a comment to make, but I'm just shocked at this content. But anyway, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a church issue it's the absurdity of the Sorensen uh, Sorensen provis- uh, uh, doctrine it, it's just every part of uh, every part of Sorensen's uh, approach to uh, Mesoamerican is just wrong and off and I'm not necessarily endorsing any particular uh, any particular uh, limited geography theory but uh, but Sorensen's books his two books have just stretched the credulity of anybody studying Mormon history and Mormon doctrine to the point of of uh, I mean to the point of absurdity and and I mean the the church purchased the Hcaora uh, in the 1920s and they held a general conference on the site of the Hillcamore and all these general authorities stood up and said this is where Hillcamore was this is where the babbles occurred this is where everything occurred and this is why we acquired this uh, the site, including members of the first presidency, and now we're getting this crazy, crazy, absurd theory just to make the shoe fit. Yeah. And uh, and and I feel sorry for Diane Matheny who uh, came out that uh, this is an attempt to make the shoe fit doctrine, and she was roundly criticized by um, by Sorensen for publishing in that cast book, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's my view of things. And yeah. I, I don't mean to carry
2: on, but, uh, appreciate it. Bob. Good show. I appreciate mm-hmm.
1: it. Thank you. Have a great day. Uh, and Bob, thank you so much for that great article that you wrote and posted access to, I think it was 47 pages. I read it all in preparation for tonight's show. Thanks so much for your research.
4: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: You bet. Yeah. All right. And, um, we're
2: on eight twenty three, but Brent Metcalf is in the queue, so we're going to take it. Drumroll, please. Brent Metcalf, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What do you think about the second Watson letter?
5: Well, I, obviously, it it never occurred. I mean, you know that that's just the fact of the matter, and I I actually posted something some years ago showing all the parallels between the Ogden letter and the uh, Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And, you know, I I, I think it, it's kind of like I, I have a tendency to want to, you know, think that Dan Peterson was doing the best he could with what he had. You know, he he has a history of, you know, just never apologizing for anything. And, um, I just want to, to feel like maybe in that moment, he realized that, um, you know that that this wasn't real, not Bill real, but you know just just something that 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 there wasn't a real document. And and so when he called Bill Hamlin, and Bill, you know, confirmed to him what was in the document. I think that that was all it took and and bill and dan have been close friends for decades i've known dan since the the early 80s and so i i kind of have learned his playbook throughout the years and the the fact of the matter is is that um Apologists will tell the story that they want to tell. Mm. And, you know, we are in a completely different place where we are from the outside and we have known what they feel from the inside. But they don't really completely understand where we are from the outside. There are a few who do. You know, I, I, I know that there are a couple of high-ranking type apologists who have been there, who have looked into the abyss, so to say, and say, what do I believe? What don't I believe? And um, they haven't been there, but we have. And so I feel like um, that we are in a place to help people understand what we've been through. My, my desire has never been to try and lead people away from the church. It's only been to try and lead people to understand what I believe and why I believe what I believe.
4: Yeah.
5: And I think, I think you two are going in a similar direction and I hope that people understand that, that this isn't about persuading you not to believe it's about at least <laughs> persuading you or letting you know why we believe what we believe and why we've experienced what we've experienced. And so as far as the Watson letter goes, no. I don't think there is a second Watson letter. It was the you know, the Ogden facts. And that's it.
2: That's it. Thank you. And
5: yeah. And that's what people need to come to terms with yeah. but, um Hey, thank you so much for taking my call.
2: Thanks, Brent. Thanks for calling in, my friend. Have
1: a great day. Okay. Thank you, you Brent. Yeah. It's great to hear from you. I guess that about does it,
2: right? We've gone a little long, but I'll tell you, you got Dan Vogel in the comments, you got Brent Metcalf in the comments. You got uh uh the backyard professor watching along. Um
1: Bob Crockett. Bob I can't Crockett understand Crockett what's keeping him. Dan Peterson.
2: No, and the only yeah, the only guy you can't get is the guy who's <laughs> held held that second Watson letter in his hand.
1: Yeah, we'll give so, Bill Hamblin a pass on not calling him. But where are you, Dan?
2: Right. Where's Dan? Yeah, we'll give Hamblin a pass. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I can't
1: help myself sometimes.
2: i have I'm ready to call it a night. Do you have any closing words, any
1: thoughts? No, I just had a great time. And hopefully uh, people have learned something. I'm just honored as heck to have such wonderful calls and listeners and comments. And that means everybody, including uh, the people that you've already named, appreciate everybody who watches. Please let your friends know this is happening every Wednesday night. You will learn more here than you will in attending a lifetime of Sunday school in the LDS church. Amen to that brother. Have an excellent night. Thanks, Bill. See you la- See you next week. Yep.